Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's myself, Panel Beater, in the studio. Got Dr. Dilemma and on the phone, Dr. Sharma. Um, good morning, Dr. Dilemma. Good morning, Dr. Sharma. Good morning, good morning. Good morning to you, Good morning to you, we, um, We're kind of uh, back in plague days, Dr. Sharma, with you calling <laughs> in uh, on the phone. Yes, yes. Uh, and this time it's not an infective illness, but... Uh, a biomechanical one. Uh, you know, I've been complaining about my hips for quite some time now. Yeah. Uh, so, so that and the fact that I'm moving houses and, yeah. you know, it's really, um, I'm, I'm going through the wars at the moment, but the magic of telephony. Uh, has, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are we, are we any wiser about the hip situation? No, no, we're not. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, basically what I've come on here to discuss today is just how medical science has failed me. And I'm <laughs> off to the homeopath. Give me some of that water. <laughs> Physician, you heal thyself. How's your hip, Dr. Dilemma? Oh, uh, touch good. <laughs> Hips are still still kicking. You've um, probably had the most exciting uh, period since we were last on air. You, um, yes, it's you been did a big a, month. A yes. tour of duty in there. Uh, not quite, not quite. I did. I had a, I had a great holiday in Vietnam, though. Yeah? It's the first time I've been, and I'll definitely be back. It was absolutely extraordinary. You, I had a great time. Were you bouncing around hospitals and clinics? Or? No. <laughs> uh, no um, my language skills are not quite quite up to that quality yes uh, still working on it it was a recreational trip um that means you fun. also didn't have to draw on um the hospitals and clinics for your own well-being huh no touch wood i stayed out of them that um very good my travel insurance did not need to be utilized <laughs> so we love that we love to see it didn't have to exercise <laughs> yeah it was great um hey, conspicuous by uh his absence is dr neo something is missing something is not quite right yeah we don't have dr neo with us um Something to do with night shift and something other with demands. With, yeah, something yeah. to do with working hard. Yeah. Excuses, excuses. Hey, but we do have a uh, fab show lined up. Um, our second guest, let's work backwards. Our second guest, Dr. Dilemma. Our second guest today is the CEO of Healthy Male Australia, Simon von Selden. Very excited to uh, have Simon speaking with us uh, all about um, a recent f- uh, investigations that found really extraordinary high rates of loneliness in Australian males and we're going to be talking about why this might be and what um, and what can maybe be done about this um, ahead of um, International Men's Health Week, which kicks off from tomorrow. Some pretty stunning stats uh, that we can uh, chat to Simon about and loneliness has been a topic that from time to time over the last few years has popped up and I remember reading a fair bit about it during COVID lockdowns. Absolutely, yeah. Um, It seems it's stuck around. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to speaking to Simon probably sometime shortly after 10.30. And uh, Dr Sharma, our first special guest is... Dr Jackie Rakov. Uh, This is an absolute blinder. Talk about things going under the radar... Panel Beater, would you have thought that psychiatrists know how to treat depression? I would have thought that's right up there, Ellie. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Extraordinary report, though, on the other hand, from the Australian Medical Council, the accrediting body 
stating that they think that psychiatry training at the moment does not adequately equip psychiatrists to treat some common disorders. I, I was just shocked to hear uh, this, and so to help us unpack this is going to be Dr Jackie Rakov, forensic psychiatrist who has a lot of involvement in the college. So very much looking forward to that. Yeah, just, just underline that point. Who was the authority who made that claim? The Australian Medical Council. Yeah. They are the ones who accredit the specific training colleges in this country. So, you know, if you're a GP, you know, say who? Well, yeah. it is the, the College of GPs. But who says the College of GPs is anyone uh, to, to uh, have authority on this? It is the Australian Medical Council. It's about as official as it gets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to uh, that chat with Jackie um, very, very soon. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Dr Sharma on the line with our guest. Uh, I am indeed, and I am psyched for this. Oh, wow, that was... Psyched for this. Goodness, I I promise it was unintentional. I I apologise unreservedly on the behalf of Triple R. Goodness. Um, But but really, I've been in my head about this because I saw this as a headline in the news panel beta, uh, and I thought for a second, maybe it's not true. You know why? Only one newslet, uh, news outlet covered it. And I thought to myself, if this was real, surely this would be a bigger story. Well, it's not, and that's why I'm happy we're on, on Triple R Radiotherapy. Where else do you get to unpack this stuff? The question is, do our psychiatrists get enough training to treat common disorders? And this is a question that was raised by uh, uh, the Australian Medical Council, which, as I was describing earlier, that's the body that accredits all the medical colleges in Australia. They released a report last month, panel beta, that that said that the College of Psychiatry failed to meet 40% of standards, more than any other college. And they said specifically that there are concerns that the college program outcomes, quote, do not adequately reflect the community need for non-acute mental health services. And I'm just wondering how this could be. So to tell us more, in the studio we have Dr. Rakov. Uh, doc, uh, Dr. Jacqueline Rakov is a Melbourne-trained specialist clinical and forensic psychiatrist and a fellow of the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. She's on the Binational Committee, the Section of Early Career Psychiatrists, and also the Deputy Chair of the Victoria Forensic Faculty Committee. This is all just to say that she really kind of gets... She's in the of, of the college here, but important to say she's not necessarily speaking for the college. She's speaking in her independent opinion. Jackie, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great to be here. It's great to have you on the show to talk about this really interesting um, topic, Jackie. Um, so let's go. Let's take a, just a step back for a moment. Um, zoom out. What does psychiatry training typically look like and like how many years does it take before someone can call themselves a psychiatrist? Big picture stuff first. Sure. So, well, like any other medical specialty, you have to finish medical school and do your generalist years, uh, intern and resident. Uh, and then it should be a five-year training program. But I think what the college has found is that due to the degree of assessment that people are dragging out and it's taking on average 6.8 years for people to hmm. to finish right hmm. okay who's who's going um let's go even one step further back who's going into psychiatry at the moment and has that profile of people moving and 
seeking out training in psychiatry changed over time? It's definitely gotten more competitive over the last few years. I think it used to be a kind of seen as a cruisy specialty, even though it was never easy to do. Uh, but absolutely, it's just as competitive as any other medical specialty nowadays. But in terms of profile, is there a gender divide? Is there a, um, a anything about people's background coming into psychiatry? Uh, are, are psychiatrists the sons and daughters of psychiatrists? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, medicine in general, we're seeing a lot more women graduate or female graduates. Uh, definitely a curious bunch, but I don't, I don't know that there's a particular profile. I haven't actually mm. looked into that. Mm. So what we're hearing... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Fionn. Well, I was going to say, I'm still stuck on that number, 6.8 years. I mean, this is after you graduate from medical school and you're in the psychiatry program. Sounds like a, a pretty long time. Give us an idea what happens typically in those 6.8 years. What does training look like? I'll give you the minimum of what should happen in the five years. So you rotate on six monthly rotations uh, where you're a junior doctor and you have a supervisor that's a qualified psychiatrist in different services. There's minimum requirements for those rotations, so you rotate through hospitals, through clinics, different sites, different age groups, different disease profiles, and you have to commit complete a bunch of assessments, both with your supervisor and through the college. And the ones through the college have recently come under scrutiny because uh, it's a bit in flux as to what's happening in terms of objective examination. What's the issue there with objective examination? How long have we got? Plenty of time. <laughs> uh, I'm not. You would have remembered last year we had a bit of a, a blip with the AV OSCE, the Observed Structured Clinical Exam, where basically it was abandoned thereafter. A bit of a knee-jerk reaction, some of us would say. Now you can actually get through to be a psychiatrist without a single person objectively examining you, clinically interview a patient, which I think would be alarming for the public to know, in my view. Wow. My view. What, what, so for a definition's purpose and clarity, um, what does objective um, examination look like or sure. has looked like? So since that's been abandoned, they've uh, ushered the responsibility onto the clinical supervisor, who's essentially your boss in the workplace, that qualified psychiatrist I mentioned before. Uh -huh. So you work together on the team, you answer to them. They're also half responsible for your pastoral care, passing you through that rotation, but now also seeing you interview a patient and uh, examining. So it's not really an objective mm. assessor mm. because you've got that existing relationship, whether good or bad. Mm. Mm. Jackie, enormous, enormous conflict of interest there, uh, one would have thought. So I'm just trying to understand why on earth would a college decide to just completely jettison objective uh, assessments? Like, is, this, is it because they've just had a bunch of bad PR because of how they've handled exams, or do they think that... Uh, I mean, I don't know. You, you tell us. I don't think we have the exact answers. I, it's not transparent to me, even though I sit on a couple of committees. I believe that uh, the newsletters that went out suggested there's evidence for other medical specialties abandoning OSCE-style exams, but the report that they reference from that professor doesn't actually mention any OSCE um, in psychiatry. And psychiatry is a very interpersonal specialty, as you can imagine, and you'd like to hope that your psychiatrist can talk to a patient, take a history, listen... Uh, I don't know how it would reassure patients to know that psychiatrists have to complete a research project, on the other hand, as opposed to learn how to talk to people. So I, I feel like that's another chasm where we're not meeting the public need and what 
what a patient's going to want from their doctor. So in the training, all um, future psychiatrists do a research project, not just the ones who want to perhaps go into research psychiatry, or clinical psychiatry, whatever, everybody does it? Yeah, it's a mandatory requirement to do a scholarly project and it's one of the hurdles that's really holding up a lot of people to that past the five-year mark. What's the premise to get everybody doing a research project even if you're not going into research psychiatry? <laughs> There's body language, folks. <laughs> What's that, Jackie? I'm not sure. I, look, I, I think it's important that uh, a clinician can read a paper, scrutinise it and think critically, analyse it, but to divert the amount of resources and mental fortitude it takes to complete the assignment uh, and get it through the college... <coughs> Framework. I mean, it's caused a lot of people, my friends included, a lot of grief, uh, having rejections and resubmitting. And mm-hmm. you're thinking, we've got a workforce shortage. Let them go. They can talk to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to be skewed. I don't know if there's some political lobbying for big pharma sure. research, but I'm not privy to that if there is. Jackie, you're painting a picture here, which is objective examinations are not happening. There was an A-B glitch last year where the exams became disrupted. Instead uh, of people objectively assessing future psychiatrists in the interview, um, it's a, you know, you've got supervisors doing the conflict of interest. You've got numerous other issues you've painted. Now let's contrast that against the, um, what we're seeing in the AMC report, the Australian Medical Council, saying that all this training and somehow... Certain community needs for mental health services are not being missed. What's going on there? I think the simplest answer is that the large proportion of your training is undertaken in a public psychiatric service and they, they service really the severely mentally ill. I don't think there's any other medical specialty where you'd come into ED and someone would say, oh, look, you've only got grade two heart failure. Can you go find yourself a private cardiologist because we're a bit short? Whereas we do that all the time for people with more high prevalence disorders that are not at imminent risk of harm to themselves or others. So we, um, we see a lot of psychosis or schizoaffective disorder, bipolar, where people are really at the pointy end of uh, service need. But... We, you know, one of the hurdle requirements is to see one long-term therapy patient mm-hmm. in five years. One. Wow. Well, whereas in in private practice, in terms of what's really common, that's uh, that's kind of a bit of bread and butter, I would have thought. Yeah, I, I, it's we have um, the Early Career Psychiatry Committee last year did a big survey where we asked hundreds of early career psychiatrists about their feeling of pre- preparedness to treat common disorders, uh, both with medication and psychotherapy. By far and away, they felt more confident with tablets. But I think another thing the public doesn't realise is there isn't one variant of depression where there's a formula. Why are people depressed? You have to understand that. Sometimes it's oppression, not depression, not living authentically or... Lots of things you need to be able to explore that, that aren't at the end of your script pad. Well, Jackie, just on that point then, what's the consensus within the psychiatric community about the definition of depression? Is there such a thing as consensus on what it is? I don't think so because we are a broad church, or well, I should say agnostic one, um, <laughs> where you've got people who lean more towards biology, others who lean more towards psychotherapy, purists, generalists, some that do a bit of everything. Uh-huh. And and I guess by definition, given the the story you're already telling us, those nuances aren't necessarily picked up in training? Well, there's no um, access for you 
to have that unless you happen to be in a particular... There's a couple of positions that might involve psychotherapy, but again, by and large, people are feeling really underprepared. They go at um, their own initiative and great cost, time and money to undertake further training in psychotherapy through external organisations mm -hmm. because they realise they, they don't feel equipped to do basic manualised therapies, let alone long-term Deeper, gotcha. deeper gotcha. Work. Is there something about, and I've got the air quotes going here, um, something about the system that is causing this, or is it something else? Um, uh, uh, is the psychiatric uh, uh, clinical community around the world experiencing similar things? From what I understand, Europe and America, they place a much higher value on psychotherapy as a as a valid treatment alongside biological ones, such as ECT, TMS, medication. Just maybe for the listener, yeah. ECT, TMS? Uh, electroconvulsive therapy mm -hmm. and transcranial magnetic stimulation. So they're as close as procedural as psychiatry. And what are they? Get. Um, basically, they're interventions where um, you sort of, for lack of a better word, you, you meddle with the brain waves and... Uh -huh. um, it can be life-saving, uh, but again, there's not that much exposure to learn it. For example, TMS you barely see as a trainee because it's not in the public sector at all, although it should be emerging soon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so to that question about the Australian system, is there something about the Australian system that then has consequences for the way training is thought of? I think there's flow down from the top. A couple of years ago there was a revision of the practice guidelines for depression and mood disorders and uh, it basically eradicated psychotherapy as an evidence-based treatment, which you can imagine caused a particular disturbance for some of the... How can, they, how can we eradicate that? Is that uh, did the report Look, show I, that there was a lack of evidence or are they just no longer recommending it? What, what's going on Depends which there? evidence you yeah. put into your guideline, really. I think sure. there was a significant um, backlash from particularly therapy-focused private psychiatrists, and rightly so, because uh, both do have a place. So if that's the feedback you get from the top, from your governing body, and there's no funding for long-term work, you don't see patients for weeks and months and years, uh, you just have 15, 30-minute appointments, check how they're going, any side effects, and move on. Mm -hmm. So it's not a well-funded sector for that high-prevalent stuff, unlike physical health. Mm. You alluded to, um, I think maybe even said directly, um, a relative shortage on, of, of psychiatrists at the moment. Is, are there dots to join between the issues with training and that supply? Um, in other words, a prospective psychiatrist hearing about the issues and then being deterred from undertaking training and maybe perhaps going somewhere else, doing something else? Not necessarily. I think there's the hurdles that really hold people up. I mentioned the Scully project. There's also the psychotherapy um, thesis, I guess, you have to write up. Uh, you have to do a few... There's still written exams. Uh, you have to get your paperwork in order. Um, and then you're not really equipped to be a private practitioner on day one, where a lot of the community demand is. So you, a lot of the work um, people take up is in public sector or... They embark on the steepest learning curve yet and propel themselves into private. Mm. So, Jackie, let me hand you a magic wand with which to <laughs> transform psychiatry training uh, in Australia. Now, I'm not saying to change the landscape of, of you know, kind of healthcare and, and public funding in general, but just the, the training itself. What would be your wish list of uh, things we could do to help 
correct some of the imbalances that you're referring to. I think there lies a really big chasm between the college and its membership. I feel like any psychiatrists I interact with don't feel represented by the values or policies uh, produced by the college. I think they need to listen to and engage with their membership a lot more. <clears throat> For example, 95% of, I think it was 6-odd hundred psychiatrists felt it wasn't appropriate to scrap the OSCE, but oh. a focus group with 38 people uh, apparently said it was, and so they went with that. Not that it was a... F wow. We weren't consulted formally. That was a initiative of some very earnest and thoughtful psychiatrists just asked their peers. Um, mm. I think we uh, under-resourced the private sector. You could absolutely have registrars rotating through. There's a lot of enthusiastic people who'd be happy to have uh, registrars come through. They'd learn a lot more about the high-prevalence disorders then. Uh, I think there needs to be a lot more, or maybe modules, uh, exposure to psychotherapy. People for really underqualified. That mm. needs to be definitely hammed up. Um, how big's the wand, Viam? <laughs> oh, look, we will extend it as much as you need. Uh, but I'm just goodness. I wish I would hand it to you. Really? So, is it a money thing? Like when you're doing the wish list. Is this solved by money or is this solved by um, essentially a professional culture? Probably both. I think mm. there has to be people giving a damn uh, in order to advocate for the need and then that trickling down through you know, the resourcing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's, um, let's, um, let's forecast that before we lose you, Jackie, we're going to talk about something, some causes for optimism. So it's not all doom and gloom. We'll look for some upsides. But before we get there, what are, what are the, uh, with this story you're telling us, um, what are the implications for patient outcomes at the moment? I think we've had more than ever complaints to the Mental Health Complaints Commissioner. We've seen a lot of... Um, capitalising on the public anxiety, for example, um, pop-up monodiagnostic ADHD clinics who are charging thousands of bucks. All you have to do is walk through the door and you're guaranteed the diagnosis. I mean, you know, you don't go to a cardiologist and say, I think I've got third-degree heart block, and, and then they just say, OK, here's the antiarrhythmic I'll prescribe you. I don't know how we're getting away with that, and I think the complaints are starting to surface. Uh, so it's almost become like a consumer-driven practice, which is quite sad. Mm. Um, and I think the wait lists for people, people can't get in to see a psychiatrist. And even then you wonder, well, why do you have availability? Are you not good? Right. We often right. joke, <laughs> the sweet spot to catch a good mm. psychiatrist is a good trainee who's just finished, open their books, you've got about three weeks <laughs> of sweet spot, then their books are closed, and then you have to wait for someone else. Right. That is grim. Very. And, and, and I guess that is um, manifest doubly so, triply so, perhaps even in areas like um, uh, the psychiatry that deals with criminals uh, and the justice system. Would, would that be true to say? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and of course that, that, that profile of patient has very particular needs. Well... Uh, and, and are they in the prison system or are they in the clinic uh, environment? Well, it's... Since we deinstitutionalised in the 90s and we didn't really prepare any scaffolding for that, everyone became homeless and or incarcerated. So yeah. prisons are now the biggest mental health care providers in the country yeah. and they're not getting commensurate community care. 
Shall we? Shall we look for some um, optimism? Oh, there's there is plenty there. You so there's obviously still training going on, and <laughs> yes. there must be what's been done well. <laughs> yeah, what's, what's been, been done, done well, well at the moment in the training. I mean, circling back to the the demographic, I don't have the stats on gender and culture, mm-hmm. but people are curious about the human psyche, and they're still going through with psychiatry training. So, the membership, as in not the governance, but they're very interested in helping people and hearing the narratives and working through patients' distress. So the motivation and the fire within the individual clinicians is still very much there. Yep, yep. But motivation and fire, that could be said, you know, just as I'm listening to you, kind of sounds like that. That's coming from internally from the individual. It's not coming from the training system or the culture of the profession. Well, you asked me for the optimism. (laughs) (laughs) I did, I did. I walked into that, didn't I? (laughs) Yeah, okay, so the individuals are grand. Yeah. There is some progress. Things like they've now implemented trainees onto the board, uh, you know, giving some semblance of voice. Whether that yeah. is actually um, something substantive, I think we're yet to see. I, and I think that um, they're going to have to listen eventually because mm. something's going to combust. The wait lists are just out of control. Mm. To play maybe devil's advocate a tiny bit, um, if the wait lists for psychiatrists, as we know, are so long, of course they are for psychologists as well, but perhaps there's a view, is there a view that these more common things, conditions such as depression and anxiety, perhaps they don't belong with or aren't best managed by a private psychiatrist if they're those conditions alone and they might be better managed um, by diverting to... You know, psychologists or um, other uh, mental health practitioners, so that the the psychiatry appointments are available to those who need them the most. I suppose that's a well. Sure. Yeah, that's a really valid point. I think psychology does bear a lot of the workload for high prevalence disorders. It's actually very rare for well, as a private psychiatrist, for you to see someone first. Like you, they come straight from the GP to you. They've often seen maybe a counsellor, a couple of psychologists. Then they thought, oh, maybe I need to look at something. I guess because we have the medical training, we can also suggest if and when medication's indicated as well as therapeutic intervention. Uh, so it, I think we're utilising all the avenues and they're still, and still all really busy. Yeah, yeah. Dr Sharma? Goodness, I'll tell you what, look, yeah, I'll tell you what, if what the cause of optimism that I have got is this conversation and frankly what I have seen from a lot of psychiatrists uh, their willingness to, to, to speak and give quite constructive criticism about how training and the entire pipeline of psychiatry is kind of developed um, in this country to meet the, the, the needs. So I think in that way I think psychiatrists have been quite fantastic um, advocates. It's a bit of a clarion call I think for, for all healthcare workers to do so. Jackie, it's so refreshing to, to hear you speak with such abandon, uh, frankly. Uh, it's, uh, we, we really hope to hear more and more from you. I think I'm going to be listening back to this episode on the podcast because there's so many other little options we can go on. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks uh, very much. Uh, Dr Jackie Rakov, uh, psychi- clinical uh, and forensic psychiatrist with various appointments and affiliations with the college. Just to be clear, expressing her own opinion for the college. Wonderful. Thanks, Jackie. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. We've lined up a great guest uh, this morning. I'm very, very excited that we've managed to nab a bit of his time. It's uh, the CEO of Healthy Male Australia, Simon von Solden. Healthy Male Australia is a national organisation that collaborates with communities, health professionals, researchers and peak bodies, partner agencies and our government to facilitate action that improves men's health. Simon joins us this morning to discuss the findings of a recent survey that reported a shocking 43% of Australian males are lonely and about one in six men have high levels of loneliness. It said that loneliness is as bad for our health and our longevity as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So there's a big push to view loneliness as an epidemic and as a major public health concern. On the eve of International Men's Health Week, which kicks off from tomorrow, Monday the 12th of June, through to next Sunday the 18th, what better time uh, to shine a light on this issue? Thank you so much for joining us and a big warm radiotherapy. Welcome to Simon von Solden. Thank you very much for having me on the show. So let's let's zoom out a tiny bit again um, before we get into the juicy stuff of, um, of loneliness and this and this survey and its, its finding. Can you tell us just a little bit about your organisation of Healthy Male Australia, what you guys do, what your vision is, and how you how you guys go about uh, reaching these goals? Yeah, look, uh, Healthy Male actually started life in 2000 um, when um, Professor David Decretza, who went on to become the Governor of Victoria, actually, um, realised uh, David's an um, uh, endocrinologist by trade and he realised there was a real gap in men's health where no-one was talking about sexual and reproductive health. So he convinced the then um, Health Minister, Michael Wooldridge, to part with some um, funds to start up the Centre for Research Excellence in Andrology, which went on to become Andrology Australia. Andrology to men is what gynaecology is to women. Um, and then in 2019, we changed up as another step to become healthy male because we realised we needed to take a bit more of a holistic approach when it came to looking at men's health because there are so many gaps in Australia uh, when it comes to men's health. Certainly. Um, so I guess let's, let's talk a bit about the, the findings and the epidemic of loneliness in, in, in men. Um, reading uh, some of this report, I thought to myself, you know, feeling lonely from time to time is, of course, within the range of a normal human emotion and experience. So I'm wondering how did the report measure or distinguish uh, normal normal loneliness or uh, from, from really problematic loneliness? What, uh, is there kind of a definition uh, to be...? Yeah, so there, there's a, um, an internationally recognised um, uh, range of questions and you don't actually directly ask if someone's feeling lonely, it's really their response to those. And those measures have been used time and time again. Um, and so what was really interesting is that we were able to measure the findings we got against other people's studies uh, around the world. And what's happening is that Australia was pretty much coming in the same as what we were seeing overseas as well. Uh, the study we did wasn't looking at loneliness on its own. We are actually looking at what the health-seeking behaviours were for men and what was stopping them actually um, going to the doctor or actually engaging in better health practices. We put the loneliness measure in there and we're a bit staggered to see the results we got. Mm. 
Absolutely. And can you can you tell our listeners, um, as we said, the forty three percent statistic I thought was quite um, quite shocking. Um, how is this is loneliness a, a problem of a certain age group, or are there any risk factors or groups that are at particularly high risk, or did you find that it was quite a, a problem throughout the throughout the ages? Yeah, I suppose the urban mythology has always been that older men are the ones who feel lonely. You know, as they retire at things, they're actually the ones who feel loneliness. And that's not what the research shows. Um, In fact, what we saw that was um, interesting was that it was actually the 35 to 49-year-old age group that was um, showing the highest levels of reported loneliness. Uh, They were saying that basically one in four men in that age bracket uh, were reporting themselves as having high levels of loneliness, which was almost twice as high as men 50 to 64 years old, and it was three times higher than men aged 65 and over. Um, So the old sort of um, story of, you know, once a guy retires, he doesn't have much to do and doesn't know what to do, actually isn't quite true. We think, and there's not enough research yet in the area, but but we look at what happens during that age range of 35 to 49, and we know that um, that's where separations and divorces are higher. Um, we know there's more economic pressures. We know um, we know a range of things. There's a lot of homelessness occurs uh, and things within that age range. And those are compounding factors, we believe, in terms of what we're seeing in these high loneliness numbers. So that's, uh, it's pretty stagnant to hear that. Um, and one thing I want to latch on to is that you, correct me if I'm wrong, you mentioned that we were seeing similar results in other countries as well. So I guess I'm wondering, well, clearly it's not something that's unique to our specific Anglosphere uh, culture in, 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 in Australia, perhaps. Are there maybe other biological, other broader social reasons that men are more prone to loneliness uh, compared to women? Well, I suppose one of the things, um, it's loneliness affects everyone differently. Um, and actually, I think as in the introduction, you were saying that, um, you know, it's, it's normal to feel a little bit lonely occasionally, just as it is. Uh, and a good example is, as with depression, it's, it's you need to feel sadness, you need to grieve, you need to do those things. But it's when it happens over a sustained period of time that actually it becomes a concern. So there are there are also reported levels of um, high levels of loneliness in women as well, but it, it's different age ranges um, and it and occurs at different times of their life. With men, um, some of the things, some of the compounding factors we think are also that, and say with a married couple or a couple that's together and they split up, often often the woman is the one who is the person who looks after social engagements, etc. Um, it just I don't know, it just seems to be a thing, and. So when a guy's then on his own, he feels really uncomfortable and quite awkward about actually making engagements and meeting up with friends and doing things, and so it tends to drop off the radar. We saw that in two... Because one of the things, of course, people always say is, oh, is this because of COVID? Um, that, you know, people start to feel more lonely during COVID. But in 2019, both... Um, UK government and the um, Japanese government actually put in place ministers for loneliness. They saw it as being such a great concern that they had to do something about it. Just about eight weeks ago, the US Surgeon General put out a major report on loneliness and has stated that, in his belief, it's the next major epidemic to hit the States. Mm. 
Simon, it's um, a panel beater here. I just um, wonder, to me, when I hear about the topic of loneliness, it seems like a real onion to peel, lots of layers and layers and layers. You referred to a moment ago um, about a set of questions, internationally recognised questions. Do those questions um, disaggregate loneliness by those who, those men who are actually... Uh, living in a home with a family, you know, perhaps a wife and kids or a partner and kids of um, some kind of some kind of family arrangement, and still reporting lonely, um, as opposed to say the profile of the man you just described, which was somebody who had perhaps uh, been in a broken relationship and was now alone. Yeah, so the the data um, will show that. Um, in fact, because as I said earlier, we were actually weren't specifically looking at loneliness. We were looking at it as, as a measure for right. um, health-seeking behaviours. Um, but other studies have shown that that's... And so there are men within relationships that are showing high levels of loneliness. Um, and that can be... And again, there's, there's, there's just... There's not enough research at the moment, to be honest. Um, and again, so we get back to hypothesising as to why why these things are happening. Uh, and that is, you know, we think it's because there's also career pressures that occur during that 35 to 49 age bracket. Um, there might be the first or second child uh, within that relationship as well. And so the focus of partners has changed. Um, but at this stage, as I said, there's a lot of hypothesising as to what is happening and how. Um, and it really is a case of, OK, we've seen this really concerning statistic come up. We need to do more work as to actually really work out what is happening and how we can prevent it better. Simon, I think there are a lot of men listening 35 to 49 right now who'll be nodding along with some of the, the, the quite reasonable hypothesising you're doing here uh, as to the causes. And to that, I guess I wanted to ask, I don't know what the status of the research is, but um, what are other associations we're finding with loneliness in terms of other uh, mental health outcomes uh, in terms of connection to things like depression or suicide or anxiety, or is that research still to be done? Um, so we we weren't looking at the links to those things. We're actually looking again, as I said, we're into um, health-seeking behaviours. And what we found was that men who are lonely actually have much poorer health-seeking behaviours than men who aren't reporting as being lonely. Um, and so uh, also men who are reporting as lonely actually had uh, worse, uh, a worse socioeconomic status. And um, interestingly... Um, some of the stats against their work-life balance, I mean, they, they are one and a half times more likely to have a poor work-life balance than someone who wasn't reporting as being lonely. Wow. Wow. As you touched on there, Simon, um, loneliness is, is bad for our mental health, of course, but not just mental health, but for physical health as well. I read um, on your website about some of those, those links between... Um, loneliness and, and physical health manifestations, such as increasing the risk of heart disease and stroke by about 30%, and in older adults, increases the risk of dementia by about 50%. These kinds of statistics I found really quite shocking. Do you, and it might be too early to say, based on the, the research that is available, but is this link well understood? Is there something about being lonely that actually causes physical changes? Or, as you touched on, are these uh, physical changes perhaps a, more likely a consequence of the, a lonely person being less um, likely to engage with you know, health-seeking behaviours and, and whatnot? Yeah, we think we think it's more the latter, and that is that uh, it's that they... Uh, well, we know... 
We do know bits like um, dietary habits uh, aren't as good, um, so uh, tend to eat worse, drink more, smoke, smoke more, etc. Um, and so we know those things happen, which then also, of course, we know lead to other health complications and factors. Um, so we know that, uh, again, their, their health habits decline with loneliness. So it's a bit of, if we, can, if we can get on top of the loneliness, can we get on top of then some of these poor health outcomes that occur due to people who tend to spiral downwards more? I see, I see. Sorry. What I'm wondering is about, as you spoke about these screening questions before, is loneliness something that you think is routinely being screened for by males who might be accessing healthcare? Do you think that um, no. yeah. it should be included in our kind of opportunistic screening um, when you go to, say, the GP? Um, and if, if, I guess, if you're going to introduce a screening... Uh, technique there needs to be a next step of what what actually could be done if if say a health professional comes across somebody who is sounding very very lonely what's the next step what's recommended yeah and uh, i mean one of the good things i suppose uh, of recent it has been the increased um time that a gp can spend with uh, a patient um because getting to the crux of loneliness is no easy thing um because it is so different in everybody so actually understanding your patients uh, well and actually asking those questions and going past the, the, the uh, yeah, immediate responses that uh, a lot of people give and guys tend to give a bit of, you know, like, oh, no, no, I'm all right, I'm, I'm fine. But um, as, as GPs uh, have said to me, you know, they really need to work out when they can get the door handle question earlier. And that's the one that the guys actually mean. But the reason the guy meant to come to the GP is the very last thing he says when he's got his hand on the door handle about to walk out the door. Um, so if we can find out what those things are earlier, then we can actually start to hopefully help GPs and the likes get some more tools to actually working out um, if this person is lonely and then some, some help-seeking behaviours. And it could be... Uh, I mean, we've heard a lot of late about social prescribing and it can be things like that. Um, there's, there's a bit of a confusion around loneliness and social inclusion. Uh, you see people who have got great sort of social lives and things, but they can still be lonely. They don't have that one or two meaningful relationships. Yet, if someone is actually suffering from loneliness, we know that one of the first tools to actually help them engage again with is actually increase their social inclusion. Um, so start just doing things with more people and start taking the focus off of yourself and onto others. So it's it's just, it, it depends on the individual. If it's anxiety-driven um, and it's a difficulty about being around people, sometimes you need some professional assistance to get some tips and tricks as to how you can actually engage with people again. Um, I, I'm going to take full advantage of having our resident GP, Dr Sharma, on the line. Dr Sharma, where in the consultation process, and we've spoken a lot about the pressures GPs are under um, in the mm. short time they have available with, with patients, um, are GPs um, asking... Uh, somebody might present to a GP with, you know, a cold or flu, um, or maybe the GP's got an inkling that they're drinking too much, or there might be some something else going on for them. Does the GP ask about their social connectivity? Yeah, about an hour after the patient's left, it's out our heads. Uh, <laughs> so the, the real... So 
the, the, the current framework of healthcare is that we are in that fifteen minute appointment. We are practicing triage, and as important as loneliness is, you know that's just you know the kind of the reality of it. Simon brought up a great term, social prescribing, and I don't want to take away from just how powerful that can actually be. Uh, as someone, you know, as, as a GP on one hand, and also as a male in that age group that he's been talking about, thirty five to forty nine. I know that you know, that certainly empowered me. Uh, however, uh, I think you know as much as we do need a medical model to to address this. And maybe Simon, you can speak to this. I wonder to what extent it is a broader uh, issue that extends outside the medical model, a social, a cultural phenomenon that needs to to really change. Um, certainly, I think there's much to be said for a health professional like a GP. Uh, giving someone the kind of permission almost to yes, you can actually go form uh, uh, form connections and uh, and you, you do have a certain amount of power in this and agency. However, uh, I, I feel like there is so much more to be done in um, in arenas that that uh, fall outside the ambit of, of of medicine and certainly a fifteen minute appointment. Yeah, look, I couldn't agree more. I, I sometimes uh, it makes me. Um almost laugh the amount of different health conditions who sell say, oh, we just want the, we want the GP just to ask them one question. Hmm. Um, and I think if GPs ask that one question for every different health condition, after about two hours, you might be able to let them go. Um, so <laughs> it, it's, it, and it is, there is, there is a bigger role that has to be played outside of GP clinics. Um, and we know just with the way that uh, in, you know, in major cities, we're seeing that the, the way that there's this desire to have high-rise living, etc. but there's got to be more emphasis upon the built environment to actually make sure that people can engage still. They can have places to be and go. Um, we have to look at... It was interesting with this study, one of the, it was one of the first times I've actually seen that in rural and regional Australia, the effects of loneliness actually aren't worse than in the city. Hey, Simon, um, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. It's Panel Beta here, and I know you're on a roll making a very important point. We've got to um, dash and hand over to the next uh, show. I'm terribly, terribly sorry to, to, to cut in on you there. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.